if people are fed, they're happy. We have less angry people in the world. It's only the simple things that I master. If I know I made someone happy, made their day a little better just by cooking for them through food, that's it, I'm happy. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Showcasing the culinary offerings from one's heritage and presenting them in a modern context are common features of many restaurants in Australia these days. And for chef Adrian de Jesus Stava, the chance to reimagine food with complex umami flavours or fun twists is getting her recognised far and wide. Adrian, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's great to get you on the show. You've um, been hitting all the headlines at the moment in the nation's capital. How are things going? Busy. I think I got rewarded with more work. <laughs> um, you um, named um, Best Chef just recently. What was that like? Well, it was very cathartic for me. It was my grandmother's um, death anniversary. So she was the one who got me into cooking. And when I won, I just had to point up. This is why all my photos, I looked like um, I was in the 70s, like we Tina. <laughs> like, it's for you. I'm the better cook. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, what, what are you doing these days? Um, you, you're cooking at Luna. Tell us a little bit about that project and what you're doing there. Luna is a playground for me. It's basically whatever I want. I know when I was a younger chef, you had to limit your cuisine, like the offerings that you have, food, it's, it, it's French, it has to be French. Now there's no limit. Every time someone asks me, it's like, it's global. So it might be a, a taco, but there's Southeast Asian ingredients in it. So that's the kind of thing that um, the owners encouraged me and allowed me to play with. What sort of impact has that had on you having that sort of free reign and being able to explore like that? It's been motivational more than anything. It's the curiosity just sparked in me. The more I think about food and the more uh, freedom they give me, the weirder the stuff that comes out of the kitchen. It's been really uh, balancing it too. Of course, we have to taste it. I have a really good sous chef with me. You need a sous chef with a criminal mind to help aid you with your craziness, your madness in the kitchen. So we taste test everything to see which cuisine, which part of the world works with what other part of the world. It's been really a fun ride. Do, do you have a couple of examples of dishes that you've got on at the moment that you could talk us through that sort of exemplifies this sort of global approach? Well, we did have, on the first menu, my favorite one was a prawn crab roll. It's not your normal lobster or prawn roll, because we use a dish that usually has noodles. So it's called palabok. It's cooked in its um, shrimp shells or lobster shells, turned into uh, etouffee, turned into almost like a reduced bisque. So that was the sauce and on baguette. <laughs> well, I want to explore sort of what you're doing there in greater detail. But you, you mentioned your grandmother. T tell us about where did you grow up and what sort of role did food play for you? I grew up in the Philippines and in an island called Iloilo. 
think I was a naughty kid because I got grounded a lot and I'm stuck with my grandmother a lot growing up. And she would always be cooking and those were the activities that were available to me being grounded. And it just, <laughs> it just uh, sparked my curiosity with food. So ever since I was a kid, I was always playing with food. Filipino food is renowned for um, their pork and um, interesting dishes. Do you, do you remember any dishes from your grandmother and when you were young where pork was present? Uh, so many things. I would see pig heads. And for most kids, it will be jarring to see the head of a pig on a chopping board in the kitchen. Um, but it's a famous dish in my country. It's called sisig. So you have to boil it in all your aromats, soy sauce, fish sauce, and then you have to air dry it. You cut it up into tiny little pieces, including the cheeks, the ear, and you serve it on a sizzling plate. And then you crack an egg on top of that one, and then you mix it all together. Squeeze some citrus. It's called sisig. Uh, sounds amazing. Is it, are there any other dishes you can tell us about, from, from uh, particularly from the island that you're from? We cook everything there. Um, lechon is also a staple in our country for any celebration or just a Manny Pacquiao fight. <laughs> it has a uh, roast pig on a spit. I think that's what you call it here. But if it's extra special, we do lechon de leche or the suckling pig. And the first time I've had to cook it, I think I was eight. I was just helping baste with uh, lemongrass turned into a brush dipped in soy sauce with chili, calamansi, garlic to get that nice um, caramelized crispy skin. Take us through the process. It does have this incredible glassy crisp skin and there's all the aromatics inside as well. What, what do you need to do to get, the, um, to get it right? Well, you need to stuff it with all the right ingredients. So you have your lemongrass, your carrots, your ginger, your garlic, your onion, your typical Asian bouquet garni, right? And then you stitch it together. And my favorite part, because it proves my strength, is to try and actually skewer it in this really large bowl. And then we cook it over fire, a fire that someone has to keep going. So it takes three people to cook it if you're doing it at home. Someone's rolling, making sure everything gets heated up in all the parts, and then someone keeps the fire going, and there's someone who's basting the skin with, like I said, the mixture that we have, which is soy sauce, mascovado, chili, calamansi, garlic. But it's like scheduled, you know, you, have, you can't miss a beat. Otherwise, it will end up, um, the skin will end up with a texture of rawhide. <laughs> and I didn't make that mistake once. Given that sort of upbringing and that connection to food early on, was, was a career in food something you'd always considered? No, I was an artist beforehand. I think I told you this before. I never thought how ingrained cooking was uh, in my being as a person. Up until I moved to Australia, because it was the only thing that I didn't stop. And I took it professionally, harassed Mick Chato, and he gave me a shot. And from then on, I just never stopped. 
Tell us about your career in food in Australia. What have been the really sort of key people and and venues that you've worked at that sort of influenced the path you've gone on? It's not a lot. It's been challenging for me, especially in the old school way of training. Now it's a bit more considerate, I would say. But back then, I was the only female. I was taking up pastry before I became a head chef. I loved baking. I liked knowing that I did something right. And um, Michael Shadow was actually the one who told me, your palate is good. Let's try and put you in hot ladder. And then bits and pieces. I moved to like fryer. I moved to line cooking as a chef de party, became sous chef. And then I became head chef. And Queenie was the one who actually gave me a bit more freedom. I became a head chef. Well, you really made a name for yourself at Queenie's. How did that role come about and what were you doing there? I was the head chef and I moved. I mean, I worked with a lot of Australian native ingredients, something I'm not familiar with. But when I tried them all, they were similar to all the fruits that we had in the Philippines. So it was just easy for me to convert my island dishes into native Australian dishes. So the trajectory of my career went with that. The moment I became authentic to myself and found my identity as a cook. Was, was there any dishes during that period of time and particularly pork dishes at Queenie's that sort of exemplifies your heritage but also native ingredients? Of course. I put sisig on the menu. They're the one that we were talking about, the pig head. And I turned it into a terrine. And instead of using macopa fruits, um, I used lilipili, which tasted the same as just in smaller. So everyone was surprised, even Filipinos, like, how did you do this? And I also made sure that it's still crispy on one side. So one side of the terrine would be warmer and the other side would be room temperature. And it was served with uh, pork rackling. So instead of bread. So just, you know, it'll help you with the drinking. It is a bar after all. What was it like uh, being in that head chef role there at Queenie's? Do you have any stories of the impact that it had on you, that role? That role made me push so much harder than ever. It was the beginning of me trying to find my identity as a chef and to be confident about it. I was able to talk to my suppliers, who I still talk to now. They are still my suppliers now, about what I want and what kind of product I'm looking for. So it basically just solidified me as a chef and gave me a voice. Tell us about that voice. Um, How would you describe sort of your approach uh, to cooking and dish creation? Well, there are so many things I had to unlearn because my training was very European. Michael Chateau specialized in Italian and French. And every time I show him what I've done to his Italian dishes, I call him like a bastardized your dish. (laughs) It belongs to Southeast Asia now. And um, we would just keep talking. I still talk to him for advice, you know, even at Queenie's. Like, I want to make this 
but instead of wine, maybe I'll use black vinegar and really try it out. So my the experimental side of me has been activated since Queenie's. And with that experiment, though, it's heavily inspired by my childhood, how I grew up. So you, you see sambal a lot in my menu. Like right now at Luna, I, I have the pork ribs at Dobo, which I've been told will never move <laughs> because of the best seller. So it takes about 18 hours of our lives, making sure it's light and tender. It's twice cooked and then glazed with adobo sauce. What sort of advice do you have for young chefs working with pork? You've, um, your, your culture and heritage has such a rich connection to cooking with pork and, and you do as well. What's some tips that you have about that? Well, they got to treat it properly. Some people I've seen, they think they could just fry it right away. I find with pork, or this is what my grandmother told me, that you have to be very patient with it because the fat has to render the meat has to be tender it's not something that you cook in 45 minutes at least in my culture it takes a day of your life to perfect it be patient that's my advice to young chefs Given uh, that you've learnt to cook a whole pig from a young age and sort of know every bit of it, do you have any sort of um, favourite cuts or underrated cuts of the, the pig that you like to use? Uh, I don't know if it's um, Australia's ready for it, but their intestines. Because we, we clean it. So you squeeze out everything that's in the tube. And then you pickle it. You brine it and then you clean it again. Then you boil it again with your aromats because we, we always pickle everything. And then you grill it. So it would have a similar texture to sweet breads, but in tube form. Wow. We call it eat out in my country. Is that something that you're, you might explore in your current role? This is why I'm pushing for it. Once I gain everybody's stress, I will show them that you have to use the entire carcass of the animal. When you kill it, of course, it's just a sign of respect and it can be really delicious. Maybe you just have to close your eyes for a little bit because I know it's not visually appealing, especially in the Western world. But flavor-wise, texture-wise... It's an adventure. Do you have any stories of connections with farmers or um, the, the pork that you get in? Is there something that you require from the pork or relationships you've fostered? In Queenies, at Luna, I'm slowly trying that. Right now, we're using Borrowdale for our pork. Uh, there hasn't been a chance for me to actually explore at the moment because it's only me and my sous chef and one other chef in the kitchen that can sit 186 people. Wow. So it's really crazy. And the kitchen is tinier than Queenie's. It's not even about a quarter of Queenie's. Take us into the kitchen there at Luna. What's a, what's a good day for you there? And uh, what's the process with the team that you have? Since we're open Tuesday to Sunday, I mean, Thursday to Sunday, Tuesday and Wednesdays are usually our prep days. 
So we do all the bread, all the dough on Tuesday, meats, sauces, and desserts on a Wednesday. And then Thursday to Sunday is basically just perfecting prep, making sure our mise en place is on point. And then we'll see which part is going to be busier, line or dessert. Sometimes dessert goes crazy. And I thought I'd prep enough, so I'd still be prepping on the backside. It's like, oh no, we have to make a tart. We have to ask people to like, can you be patient with us? So I have to show my face sometimes. And so now. You mentioned the freedom creatively that you have there at Luna. What, what, what's it like sort of creating a menu that is a, is a kind of bar environment? You want to test the boundaries with creativity, but obviously there's a customer base to please as well. What's, what, what does it take to strike that balance? I do have dish, dishes that are quite approachable. And then I have experimental dishes. All it takes is one person and word of mouth. And then it becomes the bestseller. So I do have specials every two or four weeks. Whenever I hear from my suppliers that certain meat or vegetables are on special, I would go to it, um, create something, put it on special. And so far it's been good. I have ox tongue at the moment. But it's um, served with Filipino curry sauce, karakare. So it's been interesting. Sometimes it would sell well, sometimes it would not. Because I do have a photo with the tongue on my Instagram. You mentioned um, the old school sort of kitchens that you cut your teeth in. And uh, the industry is well known for the kitchen environments back then. How do you approach your team and running your kitchen and getting the best out of people we have an open communication it's not a typical french brigade if my chef de party jonathan tells me that he needs something from the freezer and i'm free to do it i'll grab it the hierarchy there is different i just lead as far as direction is going with food creating dishes but they if they have suggestions as to how to make service more efficient or how to make a dish approachable because it's too weird. I do pay attention and listen to what they have to say. And we try it out before I say no to them. What sort of impact does it have on uh, on them and, and what's coming out of the kitchen? It's very cohesive and I can leave the kitchen and I know that they will treat the dishes with the same respects I do because they are highly capable chefs. So if you allow them to be themselves, uh, come to the kitchen with their whole identity respected, then the kitchen will function full optimal. There's a lot going on in Canberra at the moment with some really interesting operators and an evolution of the culinary landscape. Tell us a bit about what you love about Canberra's dining scene at the moment. The Canberra dining scene is actually, we have a hawker type of um, food now which for me as an Asian I just adore of course I have my classical Italians French Spanish here as well so it's become more global over the years because I've been here since 2012 the access to different type of cuisine has been immense and I'm seeing a lot of younger chefs um, 
trying to introduce their childhood to Australia as well. What's exciting you about cooking at the moment? The camaraderie that I have. Because in my kitchen, again, um, it's very varied. So I have Filipino, uh, Bhutanese, Mexican. So a lot of these cultures have strong ties with food, not just with family, with religion as well. So I've learned to cook traditionally through them, traditional Bhutanese or traditional Mexican. So it's just like constant learning. And I think that's what I enjoy the most. You mentioned uh, originally you wanted to be an artist and you were an artist. Um, how, how does that sort of impact the creativity side of things for you in regards to, to your food? Well, plating is always on point. So there's that one. And as far as flavor is concerned, I think as an artist, you're always curious. You're always pushing the boundaries, even when you paint or when you sculpt. How realistic do you want to take this piece? So with cooking, I see, let's say, how spicy I can make my sambal. So there are three levels to my sambal so people can approach it. And then when they realize, oh, it's not that bad, I told you, like, you can try the hottest one. <laughs> Let me have chilies in my kitchen, please. And then, yes, and then you realize that they do like the same things I like. And adding it to, let's say, sweet. And they'd be more curious the more they trust me as to why I'm making that certain dish. And that part of being an artist helped me a lot in becoming the chef that I am. You, you mentioned about finding sort of your food and your voice on the plate. Um, tell us about sort of what's needed from your perspective to get to that level for young chefs out there. They shouldn't do what I've done, actually. What I've done was push too hard. I did not rest. And uh, over time, it, you know, like any other thing in this world, there's wear and tears. Rest, you know, revive yourself, and then rethink what you want, what you want to be, who you want to be as a chef, what you want to create, you know, what your signature dish is. Even smaller things like that. Give yourself time to enjoy life, to think and eat some more. Eat everywhere. Discover what you want to present to the world, what you want to share. Well, you're doing amazing things there at Luna, and it's one of the most exciting new venues in Canberra at the moment. What, what, what do you see yourself doing in the next sort of couple of years off the back of that? I want to get a hat. Just one. I think two means I have to be a bit neurotic. But yes, I want Filipino food on the map still. That has been what I've been talking about for five years now. So I'm still pushing for it. And I haven't run out of steam with that one. So it's still fuego, fuego, fuego. Oh, I would love to see that too. Um, you've mentioned um, the pig skin a couple of times and, and having crackling as part of a dish and the importance of that as well um, with the cooking a whole pig. Um, 
what are your tips in getting the best sort of that glassy crackling? The grass, a uh, glassy crackling that looks like peking duck skin. Mm. That involves a lot of patience. I think my grandmother was just nice to me, but I did mess it up a lot. And the moment I did it was when I was conscious in my mind, I was in my teens. You have to be patient and you have to equally spread your base. It has to be even, it has to be precise. And I've never seen it done that pastry. I understand, but on a pig, it takes a lot of work. Attention to detail is key. Well, you're doing amazing things. And I know you're just also getting started in many ways as well. What do you love about what you do? Empty plates. I mean, if people are fed, they're happy. We have less angry people in the world. It's only the simple things that I master. If I know I made someone happy, made their day a little better just by cooking for them through food, that's it, I'm happy. Well, you're making a lot of people happy in that way, and it's an honour to have you on The Crackling today to hear a part of your story. Congratulations on the recent accolade, and I'm sure there's going to be uh, many more in the years to come. Thank you so much, Hot. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstart. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.